I'm Katie. I'm Vinny. And this is Learn Real Good. Real scientists <laughs> keeping it real. You, you like that tagline. <laughs> it's hip. It's factual. It's us. If you say so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is our first recording. Yeah, we're just starting. Thanks so much for listening. Oh, no problem. Well, I, I felt obligated to be here. Yeah, well... It's part of your podcast, isn't it? Oh, right. Oh, you mean the listeners? Yes. Oh, yes. Thank you for being so brave, sticking it out with us for the first 30 seconds. We're only just beginning. It's going to get better. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this podcast. What's going on? Yeah. So Learn Real Good was an idea we had. You know, it's there's in case, you know, you're listening to this in the future. There was this pandemic. You probably heard of it. Uh, started in 2019. Lasted all of 2020. We're midway through 2021. Here we are. COVID times. And we're like, hey, we should start a podcast. You know, what a novel idea. There's only Finally. four out there. Yeah, I think this is the fifth podcast. But what got us excited was the fact that, well, we're both really passionate about learning. We're both very curious. Mm-hmm. And we have science backgrounds and comedy backgrounds. And we love just chit-chatting and learning from each other, from others. We're like, hey, that's an idea for a podcast. That's You got yourself a stew right there. <laughs> and there's really, I feel like there's a gap. I mean, I know, yes, there are a lot of podcasts. There are a lot of podcasts, yeah. But I feel like there's room for this. I don't know if there's a lot of research-oriented science, psychom podcasts out there. Certainly not ones that seek to talk to grad students. That's sort of my my focus here is I want to talk to the students. There's so many outlets for professors and more seasoned researchers. But what about the junior folk who, you know, maybe more passionate about psychom and mm-hmm. want that exposure for their work? And oftentimes in the media, you only hear from scientists or researchers when there's something ex- mm. like exciting happening and only yes. the big uh, sexy headlines <laughs> get the journalists to go, hey, I need to talk to a scientist. Yeah. And, but there's so much great science going on that just gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. I always find like, especially when you talk to students, when they're thinking about what careers they want, if they're students who are in the sciences, they're always like, you know, doctor. Because people don't, people who are outside of academia and the research world, I think poorly understand what that life is like and what those careers are like. Science is a tough road to go. It's not easy. There's a lot of time alone. There's a lot of time where you feel like uh, the large society doesn't really pay attention to what you're doing, even though you are yourself are passionate about it and your immediate mm. circle is passionate about it. And uh, it's it's difficult. Uh, academia. <laughs> What can you say? We got out. Anyway, we're getting <laughs> a, we're getting ahead of ourselves, folks. Yeah. Right? Like, that's the idea of the show. But what is the podcast going to be like in the future? So our plan is to invite guests who are scientists, who are doing research. They're grad students who are actively doing research and it's not finished. Um, they're looking into the world around them. And asking questions. No, is that not right? You just seem really like it's anxious. Not finished. Why haven't they finished it? I like the idea of us having a guest. You finding out they just handed in their thesis, and you're like, "Get out!" Too late. I want unfinished yeah. work. You know too much. 
<laughs> you have a conclusion? Get out. <laughs> That's a policy of ours. No, no conclusions. conclusions. Just speculation. <laughs> only <laughs> only hypotheses. Yes. Yes. That should have been the name. Hypotheses only. Mm. Should it? No. Yeah. Um, go on. So we're going to have guests who are grad students who may or may not. Let's open it up. <laughs> yeah. They completed their research. They, maybe they've completed their research. But we want to talk to them uh, about their research, about how they got into their field, and get to know them as people and researchers to learn all about the the science that they're looking into and, and what motivates someone to look into it. I feel like parents are going to benefit. Parents of grad students will benefit from this experience because as a science grad student... <laughs> Trying to explain to my family what I did was always very challenging. <laughs> They'd be like, are you done that paper? Right. It's like a paper that has to be handed in for school. <laughs> the past five years, yeah. I've been working on this one paper. I just it's worth can't 12 marks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're when you're a grad student in the sciences, you're a project manager. You are a yes. scientist, of course. You're a statistician. You're a construction worker, yes. a project manager, a boss. An accountant. You have to yeah. like, it's so many skills that go into it. Yeah, and an artist. Like, there's a lot of yeah. crazy things you have to do. So that's what we want to do. We want to talk to scientists, um, learn about them, and meet them, and, and have a good time doing it. We want to make it accessible and, and a good time. Like, there's no reason that science has to be so dry and boring. Like, science, we're fascinated by science. And I think our goal is to share that excitement about science with the general public. And the narratives behind discoveries, mm -hmm. even the little ones, like how... There's so many discoveries that happen, big and small, that are accidents. And I think that's yeah. really cool to, to hear how these things, how you come up with an idea and what inspires you and things that go wrong but are gifts in the end or maybe aren't. <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe they were just a mistake. Maybe they're just a costly error. <laughs> <laughs> yes, made lots of those. Yeah. And so our, this episode, we're going to talk to each other. Oh. We're going to interview each other about our science backgrounds. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. Yeah. I, I have, feel like Katie Couric. You're the other famous Katie. <laughs> After this episode, <laughs> number two, Katie. Her? M me. No, you, you're number one, Katie. Oh, wow. You've I've, already been promoted. Oh, I'm so sorry, Couric. <laughs> yeah. I knew I'd take you down. Yeah, where's your podcast, Katie Couric? <laughs> She may have one. She probably has three. In any case, <laughs> so who's first? Do you want to be interviewed or interview? Interview I'm, me. I'm, yeah. Oh Start with me. my gosh. Let's go. Vinny Francois. Well, why don't you begin by describing your science background? Sure. Sort of what, what was your degree, where you did it, if you want, and yeah. sort of the vague topic, and then I will dig into yeah, that. Good note. luck. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, so I, my background, I have a master's in physics, um, from McGill here in Montreal where I grew up. Um, and I was always fascinated by things that were very large out in space and things that are very small in the subatomic world. And I found out at McGill, they did an astroparticle program, which is particle physics from space, which married my two interests perfectly. And so, uh, I was part of a... Um, gamma ray, ground-based gamma ray telescope project called STACE, S-T-A-C-E-E. -E. And um, yeah, and I finished in 2000 uh, was when I got my master's degree. Wow. So yeah, that was, that was part of my research. So before we get into your project, tell me why, what was it about space? Oh. I mean, 
I think it's inspirational to a lot. Like kids are into space and dinosaurs. Yes. And I never lost my fascination with space. I love, I remember very specifically a National Geographic book called Our Universe. And it had full color pictures and had like chapters on each planet. And I was super fascinated by it. And uh, and as I got older, I just got fascinated with the space program, the shuttles, and then the International Space Station was going up. Um, and just generally fascinated with space and like what the heck is out there. Um, and so I, I wanted to get some answers to those questions. Did you ever want to be an astronaut? Vaguely, yes, <laughs> yes. I, I never quite ended up applying. Like every so often, the Canadian Space Agency would send out like, "Hey, mm-hmm. come apply," and I never really applied, unfortunately. But that's fine. It just seems like a lot, it seems like a lot of headache. <laughs> no, it seems like a tough gig. It's a lot of training. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could have been. You would have been. Oh, maybe a brilliant astronaut. Maybe I would have been a terrible astronaut. You ate all the astronaut ice cream. I would eat all the astronaut ice cream <laughs> for sure. Where's all our supplies? <laughs> I ate them. We did get to try some in Houston. It's not good. It's not. It's, it's disappointing. Just, well, I mean, the regular ice cream is one of the best foods humanity has ever made, mm-hmm. and space ice cream is absolutely not that. It isn't. It's like just call it a marshmallow. And end it. Like a dry, desiccated like a, marshmallow. Like a Lucky Charms marshmallow. Yes. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I would not eat a large brick of that. Having said that, Lucky Charms, if you're out there, if you want to sponsor a podcast, <laughs> you will eat those bricks. Um, Vinny, so let's get into your project. Sure. Now, um, we haven't described to our listeners, but we know each other pretty well. Yes. <laughs> We've known each other for like eight years, and you have described your project to me several times. Sure. Do you um, remember it? Particles from space, Correct. and uh, you did. I believe it was focused on a method, a method of, of? detecting some of those space particles, uh-huh. and uh, nano, nano, teeny, quantum. I'm just trying to say physically sounding <laughs> things. Um, no, because it's really over my head. I do love physics. I find it fascinating. I you say it's these a words, very niche field. My what my thesis was in. Okay, so how, why don't you describe sure. the field a little bit, mm-hmm. and then maybe the need, and then we'll get into what you did. How's that sound? Absolutely. So field. The field is um, space t- uh, observation. So you generally stick a telescope somewhere in space or on the ground, and you look up at the sky, and it can take pictures and collect light. Some of them are radio telescopes, like the big famous one in Arecibo that recently collapsed. Um, it was featured in the GoldenEye James Bond movie. Is it the one from Contact? It's also the one from Contact, Love yes. Love that movie very fa- so, It's so a very much. famous telescope. It's huge. It looks great on film. Unfortunately, funding to support it ran out, and it recently just collapsed under its own weight. That's kind of shocking. Well, like, isn't it like the only one of its size? Of that size, yeah. But there are other radio... Now, there's different techniques. You don't need to make them oh, that I big see. anymore. Um, although it's still a loss to the community um never forget so <laughs> the telescopes telescopes are good for looking at the sky um that's <laughs> thanks that, for that putting was... things on my level <laughs> and one of the things that you can do is point like a um, a mirror at the sky and collect it and through a lens and it goes into your eyeball and that's just like an optical telescope that people buy and take pictures with and whatnot so other things come through the atmosphere other than visible light 
radio waves also right. come through the atmosphere. The atmosphere is pretty much impermeable to other radiation. So like X-rays, gamma rays, they bounce off uh, the Earth's atmosphere and magnetic magnetosphere, the magnetic field around the Earth. So if you want to look at the sky at certain wavelengths of radiation, um, you either have to put a telescope up in space or you do indirect telescope looking observations. And so the field that I was looking at is gamma ray uh, observing and uh, gamma ray astronomy. And there are sources of gamma rays all through the sky. Generally, they are old supernovas. And the core of an old supernova, which is an exploded star, will emit gamma rays. It'll emit visible and radio and all of these other rays. But gamma ray is a is a field of the spectrum, like one range of wavelengths, that is not super well understood because we live on Earth and most of it's blocked Speak out by for the yourself. <laughs> it's blocked out by the atmosphere. So why you why use that then? If if it's blocked blocked by the atmosphere yeah Isn't why a dumb thing to choose to measure if it's difficult but we to don't measure? know what it is we don't know what's out there we don't it's not understood because we are under this blanket uh of the earth's atmosphere but here's we're here to end the atmosphere <laughs> yeah we have two <laughs> options one remove the earth's atmosphere on it generally frowned upon oh uh, unless I guess you're in the oil industry. Uh, two. <laughs> Is that their goal? It's all about <laughs> yeah, gammas. <laughs> yeah. They're just big gamma ray astronomy fans. <laughs> yeah. uh, the other option is um, the gamma rays, when they hit the atmosphere, uh, they interact with the particles in the atmosphere and they uh, slow down and then cause a cascade of energy to fall down to the ground. So it's like shooting a bullet into a block of wood. That bullet slows down but it pushes all the all the wood apart mm. and all that energy from the bullet traveling gets transferred into the uh the wood and it heats up and it deforms the wood and all that stuff makes a loud noise so that energy of velocity gets transformed into other forms so that's what happens with gamma rays when they hit the earth's atmosphere um a cascade of particles are created so energetic a cascade of particles are generated electrons that are traveling very fast and those fast electrons radiate. So it's like um, uh, when you heat up your uh, oven top, it gets red, it glows red. Mm -hmm. uh, these electrons, they glow in a certain way when they come out of the gamma ray. And so you can look for this glow on the ground. And so if you see the specific glow, then you know you found a gamma ray. Have you ever found one, like a four-leaf clover? Uh, I mean, you can find them all the time because there's lots of gamma rays hitting the earth. You just have to look in the right direction. Okay. So, so we use gamma rays to measure supernovas? No, just we want to see how much energy in the gamma ray region that a supernova would be putting out. Okay. And you just want to know what, if you look at the sky, you see stars, right? Those are points of bright light. Mm-hmm. But... It looks different if you put a filter of visual light, like you block all the visual light, and then you only look for gamma rays. And it's like, oh, this is much brighter in the gamma ray spectrum than in the visual spectrum. And so now you can see new objects out there. So were you like into gamma rays or was this a no. subject that was sort of handed to yeah, you? Yeah, that okay. specifically gamma rays was not my my <laughs> desired passion. Just posters. Yeah, just had a, gamma had a picture of a gamma. bathing suits on your walls. <laughs> That would be freaky. <laughs> it would. I have more questions for you. Um, okay, so what did you do then? 
So we found a gamma ray. So we found some gamma rays. So we had this ground-based telescope that would look for these, and it's not just that it would glow in a specific. It was a specific uh, frequency of light, but it would also land in rings on the ground. So kind of like a shock wave, like um, when you go through the sound barrier, uh, an airplane has like a cone of air that is pushing, and it collapses and you get a, a sonic boom uh well light can do that too so a particle traveling really fast can build up this cone of light called cherenkov radiation and it lands as a ring depending on are you familiar with conic sections i think you know the answer to that <laughs> the answer is no uh that might be uh, a bit above uh the general <laughs> aim of this podcast but if you take a cone and you slice it like horizontally you get a circle but if you slice it at an angle, you get an ellipse. Mm. And so these cones would land on the ground, and you can tell by the shape of the ellipse or the circle, the angle, the angle from where the origin of the cone is, the point of the cone. Mm. And so you can work backwards from the shape of the ring on the ground to where the source of light is coming from. And it happens in a very specific wavelength and a very specific pattern, and that's how you detect it. And so we would have a series of mirrors on the ground that all point, each mirror represented a point on the ground and then you had a detector above that mirror that would be like detecting whether that mirror was receiving light and so then if each detector went off you could tell which mirrors went off and you can draw a shape of whether it was a circle or an ellipse and then back work backwards to see where in the sky that was coming from i've got a big question for you why why was this important to do Mostly because the sky has been analyzed to death, right? So we've been pointing visual telescopes at the sky for years. And so we know all of the energy that's coming out of the universe in the visual spectrum. We know in the... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop the presses. We know all the energy. We got it on lock. Like there's a whole list. I don't remember seeing that extra extra in the newspapers. <laughs> but the, the visual sky is so well known. It's so well studied for s- literal centuries that, uh, I mean, we're still figuring stuff out. But in general, in, it's very hard to find new sources mm. of visible, visible light in the sky. Radio, it, because it comes through, we've been studying that for you. But be, all of the stuff that's in a certain range of energies, we don't know what's out there. If there's a star that only transmits gamma radiation, we wouldn't know it unless you went to look for it. Right? You wouldn't see it. You wouldn't pick it up on the radio. All right, I'll fund your gamma detector. Thank you, finally. (laughs) So, Vinny, are you still studying gamma rays in bathing suits? No. What what have you moved on to scientifically? Nothing. I don't do science anymore. Well, that's what I was building at. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, so my thesis in the end was a part of that telescope and I uh, it was about how to uh, measure the detector uh, using an uncalibrated light source so you would want to know how it worked yeah basically you want to know how much light is going in Mm -hmm. so that you can see how much signal comes out so that when the signal comes out you can tell how much light went in initially so that was my thesis figuring out how much light would go into the detector cool did you do it was it a success yeah I, I figured out a way of doing it. Well, I'm afraid you can't be on this podcast. No conclusions. Well, I'm a host, so. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Loophole. <laughs> so what do you do now, Vinny? So now I I teach improv as a whoa, natural follow-up. Whoa, wait, whoa, what? Yes. Uh, I, I, it was always a hobby, even back in those days. Um, I was part of the McGill University Improv Club. And 
basically I just wanted to goof around as a hobby and then it just slowly took over more of my life and as improv often uh, does it can um and then i helped co-found the montreal improv theater um and then during the pandemic i switched over to running improv college an online only improv school that was delightful vin you were a fantastic guest uh physics misses you it really does that's what i've heard All right, so let's talk about you. Oh my, I don't Here like the, that shift in focus. Here we go. Mm-hmm. So, do you want to talk about both uh, your both grads? Because you did a master's and a PhD. Well, how about how about this? I, I'll sort of uh, I'll just give like a tagline of my three projects, and you can tell me which one you whatever interests it. you. Cool. So, yes, I am Katie Pegnuko. I did a, a bachelor of science at Western University. I did my master's. Uh, well, I'll describe that project first, because that's a cool project, too. We just saw a bird, a bird egg today, which reminded me of my honors thesis project, where I looked at nest parasitism and how um, uh, brown-headed cowbirds uh, nest parasitized uh, song sparrows and how the host bird babies would change their song to sound like the parasite in order to get more food. What, what is nest parasitism? So several species of birds have this really cool behavior um, where they have evolved to not build a nest um, and instead they will lay their egg in the nest of a host bird. Oh, like a cuckoo. That's like a cuckoo is exactly great. Yep. And so brown-headed cowbird is just another one. Hmm. Uh, And so, yeah, they kick out a host egg. They lay their egg. They have to kick the other one out? Because the mother, so the, the host species will often, so birds are, I'm sorry, they can be a little dumb-dumb. But if Bird they, brand, we say. <laughs> that's right. Thank you. Thank you, physicist. Um, yes. So what? if the host bird comes back and they see four eggs when they left and there was three, they will know that... Uh, so birds can do some simple arithmetic. I guess so. There's your next project. Bird, I'm not bird interested math. in that project. <laughs> um yeah but it's what's really funny is once the the host the 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 parasites egg hatches it very quickly outgrows the host and yet the the parent birds just keep feeding them all and because they're really large these these parasite birds they are louder and bigger and they seem they provide a stronger signal of hunger and they therefore get a lot of food from the parents and oh. it can actually cause a really sh- steep decline in the parents health because of all the food that they're bringing all the time it's exhausting work. wow being a parent is tough yeah so what we found was well what my um, supervisor had previously found was that host nestlings actually surprisingly did better when there was a parasite in the nest and asked why why are they had they gained more weight in the presence of one of these parasites and so my honors thesis project uh i looked at the I listened to calls and looked at their shapes, like what they they looked like sonically, and found that they changed the sound of their call to be louder and to sound more like the parasite um, in order to get, presumably, fed more. Squeaky wheel. Exactly. That's what I should have called that paper. Um, For my master's, I did that in the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And that was a project looking at (laughs) state-of-the-art under road tunnels at preserving a salamander population, which was in decline. So that salamanders, um, the salamander species we looked at anyway, overwintered in like abandoned mammal burrows. Overwinter? 
So like during winter, like over winter. Oh, over the winter. Okay, I see. Now I get it. Yeah. So it's... Uh, it so sounds they... like over winter. Double winter. <laughs> Super winter. Yeah. Um, so they would just like be, you know, sleepy in there and sleep the winter away. And then in spring, they would come out of those little tunnels and they would go to their aquatic breeding ground to mm. make babies. And these guys, this population um, of interest, would have to cross a road. Oh. And there, it was noticed a lot of them were being hit and killed on the road and their population seemed to be declining. Oh. And so the, uh, this is in Waterton Lakes National Park. They installed the first ever under road tunnels for an amphibian population in Canada. Mm. It was a big deal. Congratulations. <laughs> and it was my job to sort of do some infrastructure to encourage use of the tunnels by the salamander to see if it seemed as though they, they were like using them. Blinking lights and sexy salamander signs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bikini posters of salamanders. Yeah. Why yeah. is so many bikini posters? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I had to install big fences. So basically there are four tunnels along a road that was one kilometer long. And these are tiny itty bitty salamanders. They're not going to know like, oh, there's a tunnel, you know, right. the equivalent of like a million miles yeah, away. You can't put up a sign. They're not going to mm -mm. figure it out. So we'd have to install these big fences, directional fences. So they're always at an angle. So it always feels they can sense that they're going towards mm. their overwintering habitat or, or to their breeding habitat. Um, and uh, yeah. And then for my PhD, I did that at McGill. And I was looking at uh, invasive species, particularly how um, round gobies, which are a fish that is invasive. Are there other shapes of goby? <laughs> Goby has a pretty uh, set shape. Not round. Not round. Not round. Except for these ones. You know what's funny is that the French name is uh, Goby à tache noire. Oh, like black spot. Because they have a black spot on their fin, a prominent black spot, which uh, helps distinguish them from other fish. So what happened in English? <laughs> we really dropped, <laughs> yeah. dropped the ball. Yeah, round. <laughs> I mean, the spot's round. Anyway, yeah, it's not a great name. Oh, well. I'm, I'm sorry if the if the person who came up with the name round goby you know i'm sorry if i insulted your naming abilities well maybe we just miss it i'm missing what the name maybe it was round spot goby and everyone's like ugh, i don't want to say the whole thing <laughs> fair enough um yeah so looked at how they interact with you know the very famous zebra and their lesser known cousin quagga mussels and how together they can influence uh primary production but through trophic cascades, which is one of my favorite What's topics. primary production and trophic cascades? So <laughs> <laughs> primary production refers to sort of your, uh, like plants would be the most obvious primary producers. Things that are at the base of a food web because they are the, the first that turn non-organic energy into organic energy. So plants do it through photosynthesis. That's pretty obvious. You can mm. do that through non uh, photosynthesis, chemosynthesis as well. If we're talking at the base of a... Um, hydrothermal vent. There we go. No photosynthesizers down there, but no. still communities. Right. Yeah. And so the, and then uh, trophic cascade. I think was the other term that you used. Yeah. So sounds so, cool, like a band. <laughs> trophic cascade. <laughs> that was one of my my first bio based bands. Buh, buh, buh. Um. Yeah. So so trophic cascades. I always found that fascinating when I learned it in school. So, um. It's this phenomenon where a predator, if it's having a strong influence on a food web, 
um, through tr typically through predation. If they eat a lot of the herbivore, right? If you have like a first tier predator that consumes herbivores, eating a lot of herbivores, that will have an indirect positive impact on your newly learned primary producers, mm. right? So that's a trophic cascade, this idea that you can have this this alternating positive negative relationships down a food, a given food So chain. you have a negative impact on the population that eats a lowered the item. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. friend. Right, right. That sort of thing. Cool. Yeah. What'd you find? <laughs> for, my, for my PhD entirely? Yeah. I mean, so a PhD is a, it's not one project, right? So I had four different chapters doing very different things. That's sort of trying to describe it all together in one tidy topic. So sure. I had one, one chapter was just looking at uh, impacts of invaders versus native species and, and sort of looking at past studies, doing what's called like a meta-analysis to get some overall patterns in the literature. I had a chapter looking at gobies versus native fish similarly and how they affect trophic trophic cascades i did a field study where i scuba dive through the saint lawrence river <laughs> that was the whole chapter just yep. me scuba diving through the chapter i mean just that like was luxury videos because <laughs> it is quite luxurious yes. scuba diving in the saint lawrence river <laughs> uh looking at goby populations and their effects on uh benthic invertebrates so what's like, a benthic invertebrate benthic refers to living on the bottom and invertebrate like so if you have like a basement apartment <laughs> So like insect babies often, right? Insect babies live on the bottom of the water. And so I was looking at they numbers do? of them. <laughs> well, not all of them do, but a lot of them do. Yeah. Insect babies live at the bottom of the water? Right. So lots of flies, lots of insects will lay their eggs in aquatic habitats. Oh. Like mosquitoes. What about like beetles? And and... flies. There's water beetles, but not all beetles are aquatic. Oh. Wow. I never knew that. Mayflies. Mayflies. At the bottom of the water. Well... Yes, well, in the water, yes, at the, yeah, often at the bottom. Yeah, they crawl but like around. Bees don't do that. No, they have hives. <laughs> That's what I know. <laughs> Nailed it. But they're the food. They're a big food base for a lot of uh, predators that live in the in the water. Hmm. Like, well, little fish will eat those, those and then bigger right. fish will eat the fish. I've seen that book. <laughs> um, and then I had a cool chapter where we were looking at crayfish and omnivorous versus predator crayfish and their influences on trophic cascades. But what's cool about that project is that all crayfish are sort of omnivorous. And so what we did to make them predators was we actually uh, did surgery on them to remove the mouth parts that allowed them to graze the plants, basically, so that they were forced to be predators. So they couldn't eat herbs anymore. <laughs> exactly. Got it. <laughs> yes. The things we do for science. And you figure did they did the was it conclusive in any way <laughs> uh that that was a really tricky project to do the statistics on uh there didn't seem to be an impact of so we looked at two different factors there we were looking at native so so sorry invasive uh crayfish and ones that are have evolved here uh, versus um, uh, predators and omnivores. So we looked at both of those things and we didn't f see an impact of native versus non-native crayfish. But we did find an impact of uh, predators versus omnivores. Wow. Yeah. It was pretty cool. That is pretty cool. proud of that one. Good work. I got to do that with my buddy Monica. Nice work. Monica Granados. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> That's us. That's amazing. Yeah. Good work, Katie. Oh, you know, I love it. I love science. And I found along my journey... Um, I had, I had often been given advice to avoid doing TA work mm -hmm. 
because it takes time away from your research mm-hmm. and you can't be as productive and make as get as many papers and that's such an right. important measure of success through grad school and so i didn't do ta work till i did my phd and i loved it i didn't expect to love it because mm-hmm. I'd, I'd gotten a bad impression from a lot of people well what do you do now yeah, so that brings me to what I do now. So I am currently a uh, college instructor in the biology department, and I feel like I have the world's greatest job. I, I, I get to talk to brilliant young scientists who are so enthusiastic about biology and what's so cool about it and get them excited about it and uh, get to see them learn. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful, magical thing, and I feel so lucky I get this life. Amazing. And I do improv. That's how we know each and other. And that's how we know each other. And full circle. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. We did it. Yeah. We both have a love of comedy mm-hmm. and, and making things up. Um, and so, yeah, I think this, this podcast comes out of a love of trying to make sense of the unmake sensible. Yeah. And improv taught me a lot about, you know, how important it is to be to be you to have personality mm-hmm. and to be sort of willing to make mistakes and uh, to tell stories because science is all about stories yes at any time you can present your information in the form of a narrative mm-hmm. the audience is going to remember it that much better yeah exactly that's it we did it first episode is that it we're done i i feel like there's it. nothing else to talk about yeah, we solved, we solved physics and biology. Done. Biophysics closed. We, in conclusion. We can't have a conclusion. Oh, We're going to get kicked off the show. I was just checking. <laughs> <laughs> so where do we go from here? So in the future, we're going to have guests. We're going to talk to them. Yeah. We've got recordings planned. They yeah. are coming out. This is episode zero. So yeah. I look forward to episode one. Cannot wait. It's a good place to start. Yep. See you soon, folks. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. <laughs> Bye, Vinny. Bye, Katie. Oh, real good. <laughs> I'm gonna cut that out. <laughs>